It was really about bringing innovative Australian research out of the university labs and into real applications. We thought we knew everything we wanted to know about human evolution, but there was this amazing discovery out of the tip of the pinky. Do you think we have the ability to turn this around? So I thought, what are we going to do with an electrode you can tie in a knot? Uh, Children are super. engaged, they're ready to learn, they're excited. It's not just about having more science, it's about doing the right things with that science. Welcome to Can You Tell Me How? Powerful Answers to Urgent Questions. This is a podcast series from the University of Wollongong, and my name is William Verity. And my name is Lizzie Jack. All right, Lizzie, it's your turn. This is the, this is the final episode it of is. this series, so Our that's pretty sad. It is. But um, it's a great one to end on. It really yeah. kind of blew me away, actually. So t- tell us what we're going to be hearing this time. So we're going to be learning about optical dating, and that is basically seeing the world in a single grain of sand. So there's been this age-old question for a while of where do we come from, you know, what is it that makes us homo sapiens and why we as a species survived over other species that didn't. And researchers have always had this idea that we, you know, we disperse out of Africa, but the past decade has led to some crazy discoveries um, that's pretty much taken back everything that researchers thought they knew about where we came from. Yeah, so I'm just a little bit older than you and I studied archaeology at university and and listening to this actually made me think, I loved studying it, made me think how much has changed. So so it used to be so simple in the old days that Homo sapiens is basically 40, 50,000 years old. We came out of Africa, went into Europe, populated Europe and the Middle East and there we are and then, and then went through the rest of the world. What we now understand and what we're about to hear is that actually things are far more complicated than that. And in fact, there are a whole species of hominids of people like us that we had no idea about. Yeah, so you can you can blame all that on a tiny piece of pinky bone that's been found and basically just completely disproven that idea that, that archaeologists have had for a while. And yeah, so the, the where, the what and the why is what people have been kind of focusing on, but UOW researchers are analysing one grain of sand at a time to figure out the when. So Mm. let's have a listen. I'm Professor Zenobia Jacobs. I'm Bert Roberts. I'm part of the School of Earth, Atmospheric and Life Sciences. I'm Director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage at the University of Wollongong. In the Faculty of Science, Medicine and Health, I'm also a Chief Investigator of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. Back in 2010, we were sort of had a surprise finding. We We thought we knew everything we wanted to know about human evolution in sort of its broadest sense, but there was this amazing discovery where they, out of the little uh, tip of the pinky bone of a um, young girl found in a site called Denisova Cave in Siberia, they managed to extract what we call ancient DNA. And from that they realised that that DNA actually belonged to a type of hominin, which is a fancy word for our ancestors, human ancestors, that was not known to us before. It wasn't Homo sapiens, which is who we are. It wasn't Neanderthals, the other very well-known one, or even species like Homo erectus or even earlier. It was something completely different. But that was quite related close in time to both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. 
but it was a complete surprise. No one expected it. And it turns out since then, in the last 10 years, a lot more work has been done on Denisovans, trying to work out how many of them there were on the planet, how widely distributed they were on the planet, how they interacted with Neanderthals and with our species. And there are two sort of interesting facts. I mean, one of which is that Denisovans and Neanderthals did interbreed at some point. And the other is this, we must have interbred with Denisovans at some point because Denisovan DNA appears in people around the world but in greatest abundance in Aboriginal Australian people and in people who live in New Guinea. So it's there in much higher abundance than anyone else in the world and we don't know why. And of course Australia and New Guinea are a long way from Siberia which is where this cave is found in Central Asia. So it does indicate that we know almost nothing about some chapters of human history and trying to piece it all together is what makes it a fun area to do research in. So that was quite a surprise, and that was kind of throwing a bit of a curveball in the story of human evolution. And we became involved because everybody then wanted to know how old this little pinky bone was of this new unknown ancestor of us. So when the discovery was first made of the Denisovan genome back in 2010, I wrote to the archaeologist in charge of the site because the dating of the site was very uncertain. The genetics was much better known than the dating of the site, so... I said, oh, if you're interested in doing some dating, we'd be keen to do some dating with you. We can start a collaboration. They were keen, so we went over in 2012 to start to collect some sediment samples. Denisova Cave in Siberia is the only known site in the world where three species of human came together. And while you might be thinking of that typical view of digging up dirt and dusting off bones, the hardest work is actually in the lab. Researchers examine the sand around the fossil to determine how long it's been at the site through a process called optical dating or luminescence dating. We look at individual grains of sand that is surrounding or embedding, or the fossils might be embedded in these sands. So we don't directly date the fossils. We actually date the sediment in which the fossils are found. So it's through association that we then determine the age. If you think broadly about it, you would, you would have a discovery. People will have to find a site. Quite often that might be done through extensive surveys out on the landscape or in cave sites. Once you have that discovery, then you have a team of people that might have to prepare the site. The site gets excavated. That's a number of different types of people involved. If you have human fossils, you have to extract the fossils from the sediments. Or, you know, if you go back into the sites in, in South Africa, for example, um, of Australopithecines, which is kind of quite a long way back in human evolution, they're quite often cemented into really hard rock, and people have to very carefully chisel them out of that, what they call a breccia. So it's quite a science just to do that in itself. And then it might often be quite fragmented and people have to put it together. It's like a 3D jigsaw puzzle to put that together. People now do very smart things through um, CT scanning and all sorts of virtual reconstructions of things. You might also have people looking at the dietary uh, through looking at isotope analysis. You have people that then that also look at the archaeology and the ecology that the people were exposed to back in time. Um, so there's a whole team of people. And then people like myself that's interested in determining the age of the fossil, the fossil bearing layer, would be part of that team. Luminescence dating determines how long the sediment has been inside the cave by figuring out when a single grain of sand was last exposed to natural light. So... The luminescence clock is an interesting one. It gets reset by sunlight, so we can't extract our samples in daylight. 
we have to go at night when it's dark and we can use red lit torches. That's kind of like a photographic darkroom condition. Or we can do it, we can embarrass ourselves and go underneath tarpaulins and stuff during the day. But, but the essential thing is that it can't be exposed to sunlight because the moment we do that, we reset the clock and the information is lost. So we'll get an age that's modern, you know, that's today. So it's quite fun when it's a little team of us. We go into these crazy, you know, cave sites. Um, it's quite eerie. It's, it's nice to go at night. It's the red lit thing. It's a bit of an adventure, you know, that's our adventurous part. So we'll extract these sediments, put it in black plastic bags to protect it against light. It will then come back to the, uh, to the laboratory at the University of Wollongong. All our laboratories are this photographic darkroom light conditions. We will then start to purify the sand because we're only interested in mineral grains that's either quartz or potassium-rich feldspar grains. And we take it through a whole series of steps to clean it, to remove all the carbonates and remove all the organics. And through density, uh, knowing the different densities of minerals, we can actually then separate all the quartz minerals from the potassium-rich feldspar minerals. And we clean those. And it's then those little individual mineral grains that we then put in specially designed equipment. We put them in little disc holders where you can put each individual grain in a little hole. And we can steer a laser beam to each of them. We zap an individual grain with the laser beam. And as it zaps it with the laser beam, it gives off light. And that light is called luminescence. And we're measuring the amount of light because the amount of light in each of those grains are proportional to the amount of radioactivity. It's received in the sediments while it was buried there for a thousand or tens or hundreds or millions of years. And we can then measure that and tell you how long it's been buried. And that will give you the age in thousands of years or hundreds of years. And from that, we can work out how long the sediment has been buried in the cave and therefore how old the stone tools and the human fossils and the other animal fossils are that are buried in amongst those sediments. So we've been collecting sediments for several years now from the cave, tying together the history of when that cave started to fill in and when people came in and out and when other animals like hyenas and wolves and cave bears were living in the cave as well. So there have been quite a lot of animals living in that cave, including humans, a timeline on when those events actually occurred. And until earlier this year, it really wasn't known exactly when these things did take place. So I think our contribution has been to put a timeline on when things did happen in the cave, because now you can work out cause and effect and how things tie in with climate changes. Was it cold or was it warm at that time when people were living in the cave? So it's now made an interesting story, I think, over the last 300,000 years of what's going on in this rather important cave in the middle of Asia. It's a, clearly a very long and tedious process, and you're obviously gathering a lot of grains at once, but how, by the time you, you know, fly to the cave and get in there and get all your equipment and come back to the lab what's the timeline like to analyze one single grain of sand yeah for example the the siberia or the denisova cave project we started to work there in 2012 and we don't have a recipe we kind of have to do experimental work to work out how to date samples from each and every site that we visit 
So when people ask me this question, I often say, oh, it's taken us about five years to figure out what to do. And we've been going back every year collecting more samples. And then once you figure out what to do, you can do that a little bit more rapidly. But it's probably taken us another two years then to determine the ages for those 100 samples. So it's been seven years. And we're not done yet because they, of course, keep excavating and finding new fossils. So we go back every year, take more samples, bring it back. But it's a very long process. It's not something that happens overnight. Are you looking for any sand in particular when you're in the cave or you just pick up a scoop? Or do you know what it is that you're looking for or it doesn't matter too much? For us it doesn't really matter too much and that's the beauty of the technique. There's sand everywhere and there's minerals and you know feldspar and quartz are ubiquitous around the world. So we can basically go in and scoop out uh, sediment but we are a little bit more strategic than that so we're obviously looking for places where we believe that it's intact sediment and we also look for places where it's close uh, closely and associated with uh, fossils and artifacts so that we can make that association a little bit better. How do you rewrite history, so to speak, while maintaining the respect to the Indigenous cultures that you're researching? That's an issue that we grapple with, especially in Australia. It's a continuous culture and they're so connected to their country that you cannot just go and dig a hole and remove stuff. So it's always done in partnership. And actually very few human remains are studied in Australia for exactly that reason. I haven't done a lot of work in Australia, but as part of the Centre of Excellence, we are doing a lot more of that, and it's a much slower process. We were some other sites, you know, discovery are made, archaeologists go in, they dig it out, and they, you know, do all sorts of techniques. That's not really how we do it in Australia. In Australia, discovery might be made quite typically actually by the Aboriginal community. They might then approach the scientists to form a collaboration to work together with the understanding that it's a collaboration, that it's not something that uh, we do because it's part of their culture. And then it's a very slow process to actually build up that relationship and trust and respect that we then uh, work together towards coming to a, a mutual understanding of what this might mean, both from a Western science point of view but also to the indigenous society as a whole or particular to that group. So it is a difficult question and so if we can do it with respect and as a collaboration I think for us it's actually a great way of making making an impact for our science. Archaeology generally has got to move away and has moved away from that sort of treasure hunter mentality into one where it's a participation with the indigenous occupants of those countries because it is at the end of the day their heritage it's their history that we're investigating so they must be partners in all of the storytelling that comes out of this it's not just you know science for science's sake it's got to be science in partnership with indigenous peoples But it is nice if we can actually, if we make some nice discoveries where we can put it on the sort of world stage and share this amazing continuous culture that the Australian Aboriginals have with the world. How or, or why did modern Homo sapiens survive and other species didn't? So that's, of course, the million-dollar question that we would all like to answer. <laughs> and, and we don't know. What we think is that we have this amazing ability to communicate through the use of symbols. 
which gives us the ability to actually use things like language. Now, at the moment, there's debate as to whether Neanderthals might have had some of that, that ability as well, but Homo sapiens, we, we've had that ability, and we've had that for a very long time. If you look at some of the African evidence, we've had that for at least 100, 150, even 200,000 years. So for as long as we've really been anatomically modern. So we think it's that ability to use language so we communicate a lot better that makes us a more sort of pro-social group of people. So we cluster together and we sort of dependent on each other. That makes us sort of different from any of the other species. And we think it's that, that cultural adaptations and that ability to communicate that's probably given us the edge over some of the others. The pinky bone discovery was significant for a few reasons. The DNA extracted proved that this female was the daughter of a Neanderthal and a Denisovan. So not only did they live at the same time, they actually interbred and reproduced. This is something that's made scientists question everything they thought they knew. What does a discovery like this mean for the future of archaeology and and your research? That's an interesting question. (laughs) It's a big question. I mean, um, I think archaeology is one of those things that fascinates everybody. And I think we sort of make a living on sort of satisfying that curiosity that every person have about where we come from. There's so many little kids that would tell you that, oh, I want to be an archaeologist one day. Or even adults that said, oh, when I was a kid, I want to be an archaeologist. So I think archaeology would live on forever. And even the traces that we leave today would be the archaeology that people into the future would look like. I think they will be terribly confused because we are a chaotic species at the moment. But, you know, I think these discoveries help help us rethinking and reconnecting with what it is that makes us human. And that's what's sort of interesting to a lot of us. There are so many different scientific techniques that's contributing to this. Quite often people might say archaeology is dead because we can tell a lot more from the genes through things like ancient DNA. But I think we still have to unearth the evidence for the scientific techniques to be applied to the evidence. So I think archaeology is, if anything, as strong as it's ever been, if not stronger. And I think through these discoveries, we're actually opening it up to the public out there to become more curious about it and to think about archaeology as more than just the pyramids in Egypt, (laughs) because that's what most people think of, but to think about it as this this thing that actually is uh, has shaped us as humans over you know millions of years. It's funny that you said there's people that think that archaeology is dead because to me it seems it's kind of like this giant jigsaw puzzle but you're never really going to finish it. There's just always more pieces coming. So yeah, that's interesting that people think yeah. that. That's certainly true from a scientific point of view because I think when I... When I think about when I started out, you know, probably about 20 years ago now, we we thought we had a really good understanding of at least our own species, Homo sapiens, and everything's been turned upside down. Yes, I think it means that we know very little about human evolution. All the time we think we have a good handle on it, and, you know, every few years something turns up that just turns it on its head. People's notions of how humans had dispersed out of Africa, our species had dispersed out and we'd replaced every other kind of species on the planet. It was a total replacement. 
here we all are, the mighty conquerors of every other kind of human on the planet. It's ours to inherit. And it turned out, oh, not quite true. Actually, there was another one hanging around until quite recently, as did Neanderthals, as have Denisovans. But I think the thing is to realise that, you know, we're still conceited in thinking we understand the whole of human history. Um, when we don't. And it's only when you get these remarkable discoveries out of the blue, you realise how little you actually do know. And we're always trying to find a, a nice, simple pattern to explain it. And the reality is there isn't a very simple pattern to explain these. Even just this year, or in the last two years, you know, we had this idea that we all came from Africa and we never interbred with other species and that we uh, probably came out of Africa about 50 to 70,000 years ago. But just in the last two years, we had Homo sapien remains in Africa dating back to about 320,000 years ago, which is much older than we previously thought our species existed for. We had Homo sapiens out in Israel at 180,000 years ago. And just the other week, we had a Homo sapiens fossil in Greece at about 210,000 years ago. So there's all of these Homo sapiens out of Africa much earlier than we thought. So we know from that that there were a lot of Homo sapiens exoduses, I don't know whether that's a word, um, out of Africa <laughs> out of Africa much earlier. We also know we had them in China 80 to 100,000 years ago. But those were probably dead ends. And then the one that actually led to all of us probably still happened about 50,000 to 70,000 years ago. But there's so many different things that's happening all the time. And with new scientific techniques such as ancient DNA, paleoproteomics and things like that, we also start to then understand the complexity of having all these different um, new hominin groups. I don't think we, any of us believe that anymore, and it's all been turned upside down. So it's actually an incredibly exciting and interesting time to be part of telling the stories and making the discoveries. So to see the world in a grain of sand obviously is is a quote from the great poet William Blake, but it's never been more true than now. Yeah, who would have thought that that, that, that would define who we are as a species? Crazy. Mm, crazy. Crazy stuff. So we, we've reached a slightly sad point in our lives, haven't we? <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is the end of the series. That's what you're referring to, yes. Matt? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> There's not something else going on? No. Okay. Good, good. Not that I'm going to tell you. <laughs> okay. If you've enjoyed this series, you can rate us, obviously, but you can also listen to the first series, which is called Can You Tell Me Why? So just search that up and you'll find a whole load of more amazing UOW stories. Yeah, and if you wanted any more information about how University of Wollongong's research is solving society's biggest questions, just visit stand.uow.edu.au. Please rate us on wherever you get your podcasts Yeah, because that may help us persuade the university for Season Series 3. three. <laughs> Fingers crossed. We'll see you next year, maybe. All right. All right. Well, it's been a great pleasure working with you, Lizzie. It's a sad moment, but we have to say yeah, goodbye. Likewise. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting <laughs> me in. It's a good time. And hopefully we'll do this again sometime. That's goodbye from me, William Verity. Goodbye from me, Lizzie Jack. Till the next time. Yeah, see you okay, then. Bye. <laughs>